Will you turn with me, please, to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John? John chapter 20. I was for years on the chapel staff of a uh, university on the West Coast, and uh, from time to time different chaplains were appointed as uh, dean of the uh, chapel on that, uh, on that particular campus. And I remember on one occasion going to meet a new dean just to chat with him a little bit about uh, his set of beliefs and mine. And in the course of things, we began to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, which he kept referring to as the Easter event. And after a while, I, I asked him what he meant by the Easter event. I said, Did you, do, you, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And uh, his comment was that it really doesn't matter. He said, it's clear that the early, early church believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But uh, as for me, he said, I don't. And then he laughed. And he said, you don't really believe that Jesus' dead carcass came to life again. And uh, he walked out of that tomb. Uh, I said, yes, I do. I, I really have to. Because Paul said, if that didn't happen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead then we're the most miserable people on the face of the earth. We've got nothing to preach. We might as well shut up our churches and uh, turn them into museums as they have in Albania and, or a warehouse or something of that nature and forget the whole thing, fire all the preachers, give them all pink slips and send them home and, and get on with the business of living. Because without the Easter fact, there's no Easter faith. You can't have one without the other. Either Jesus came out of that tomb on Easter morning or he did not. If he did, we have something to say. If he didn't, we do not. It's just that, just that simple. Now, there have been a lot of ingenious uh, attempts to explain away the resurrection of Jesus. Some have said that uh, Jesus fainted on the cross. He passed out as a result of the damage that was done to his body and the loss of blood. And when he was placed in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb revived him and he... Uh, he, uh, it seems that he arose and he walked out of the tomb, walked back into Jerusalem, and the disciples were so uh, psyched up about their expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead that they accepted him as a risen Lord. But there are some major problems with believing that Jesus simply passed out. He'd been beaten within an inch of his life. Uh, he was crucified, which was intended to be a form of capital punishment. They expected people to die. Uh, he'd been pierced by a sword or by a spear. Uh, even if he was placed, uh, even though the, cool was uh, the tomb was cool, uh, he was without, uh, without water for parts of uh, almost three days. Uh, he was in deep shock. It's, uh, it's beyond belief that he would somehow get out of the grave clothes, push away the stone, which weighed hundreds of pounds, overpower to... Uh, Two guards at the door walk on feet that had been pierced by nails all the way into Jerusalem and appear to be a victorious risen Lord. It just, just stretches belief beyond the point of uh, credulity. In fact, it's a greater miracle that, to me that he would do that than that he was actually raised from, <laughs> from the dead. Others have said that, uh, that, the, that the men and women who came to the tomb on Easter morning came to the wrong tomb. Uh, they were confused in the darkness. They came to the wrong place. A young man seated at the tomb said, He is not here. He's over there. Uh, they imagine. Of course, what, what the angel said is, He is not here. He's risen. But uh, they, don't, uh, they don't complete the statement. And again, it's unbelievable that, that as many people as are involved in, 
in the affairs of that Easter morning could have gone to the wrong tomb or that they have con- would have continued to go to the wrong tomb. Simply, is, it just couldn't be. Others would say that, uh, that this was a form of mass hallucination. The disciples so anticipated Jesus' resurrection that they actually convinced themselves, convinced themselves that he had indeed risen from the grave. But Paul says over 500 men and women at one time saw the risen Lord, and that sort of mass hysteria is unlikely. And furthermore, no one really thought that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. That was not their expectation, as John tells us clearly in the passage we'll read this morning. So it's highly unlikely that this was some form of hallucination. Others have said, well, uh, his foes stole the body. And uh, my question uh, to them is, why? Why would they do that? When on every hand they were trying to suppress the gospel, why would they do something that would support it? And furthermore, why didn't they produce the body when the, Jesus, when the, when the disciples began to preach that Jesus had risen from the dead? And others would say, well, the apostles stole the body. And I have to ask the question, why then would they go to their death for their, for their beliefs? All of the apostles, with the exception of John, died martyrs' death. People will die for what they sincerely believe in, but rarely will people die for a hoax that they've perpetrated. You can't think of any occasion when they would. These men went to their, to their deaths firmly believing in the resurrection of, of Jesus. And the thing was preached all over the, uh, the, the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, there's a, a, an archaeologist in Israel today. His name is Sakinik, who uh, teaches at Hebrew University. who's done excavations in Jerusalem and found Osiris, little bone caskets of Christians, first century Christians, latter part of the first century, within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus. And on the side of the uh, caskets, you find things written in Greek and Aramaic and Latin, things like Jesus risen, or Jesus let him rise, a prayer to Jesus for the, for the resurrection of the, the, the beloved, the loved one who's in the, in the casket. There's no question that this was the early, this was a belief of the early, early church. Now, what did they base it on? That's the question. What are the facts upon which our Easter faith uh, is based? Well, John tells us in, in the, in the uh, chapter in front of us here, and it's not what we normally think. He bases the Easter faith on a set of facts that perhaps you've never, never thought about. Let's begin reading with verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the, uh, from the tomb. Uh, it was customary in those days to visit the uh, grave of a loved one on the third day after their burial. We don't know exactly why. There are indications all through the Old Testament in at least symbolic representations that, that resurrection, that the resurrection of the Lord would take take place on the third day. There was some superstition that was prevalent in, 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 uh, among the Jews of this time that the soul didn't leave the body until the third day. That's not a biblical belief. It's simply something that they believed back then. But for whatever reason, they normally did not come to the grave on the second day after burial, but on the third day. Mary and some other women were given their names in uh, the book of Luke, came to the tomb very, very early in the morning before it, was, before it was light. They were not coming expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. Now, you've got to understand that. They came to anoint his dead body with spices. It's the sort of thing that we do when we come to the tomb of a loved one to leave flowers behind. That was their purpose. They expected to see the body of Jesus lying in that tomb. 
Now, graves in those days, at least the graves of wealthy people, were usually rock-cut tombs. Uh, Jerusalem is, uh, the, the, the mountains around Jerusalem are limestone. They're very easy to excavate. And they would cut these tombs right out of the rock. If you go to Jerusalem today and visit as a tourist, they'll take you to Gordon's tomb, which is one of the traditional sites, uh, burial sites. We're not sure if that's the one, but it's one of the traditional sites. And it's simply a rock-cut cut tomb. There's a chamber off to one side where visitors could sit and look at the departed. And there's a slab on the other side with a ledge on which the head was laid. And um, you could sit in the little tomb. It was large enough to get half a dozen people in there and, and mourn. Or it was a place where these women were, were expecting to go and, and view the body and to anoint it with, with spices. When Mary came, and as she came in the dark, it was before dawn, couldn't see very well, couldn't see in the tomb, but she could see that the stone had been rolled away. And it alarmed her because she thought the grave had been robbed. This was a common enough practice in those days, and particularly were, were the, the graves of, of the wealthy robbed. They'd break in, they'd take away the, uh, they'd often be expensive uh, articles that were buried with the loved one, and, and they would be buried with their fine clothing and their jewelry, and, and they would actually desecrate the body. They would unwrap the, uh, the grave clothes, and they would take the jewels, and, and they would just unceremoniously dump the body out or, or onto the floor and go, or go about their go on to some other grave. It was a capital offense. It was a very serious offense, but nevertheless, it was done regularly. And that's what Mary thought. When she came to the grave, the stone had been rolled away, and she thought someone had robbed the grave. They had taken away the body of Jesus. Now, we know that in the middle of the night, uh, there was an earthquake, and the stone rolled down. Uh, there's, a, there's a little channel that's usually built at, underneath the door underneath the door and to one side of the door in which the stone rolled. The one that's pointed out today as Jesus' tomb was used by the crusaders for a horse trough. The groove was. You can see where the horses, crusaders' horses pawed at it and broke the edges down. But there's a little groove there on which the stone uh, rolls. This earthquake came, and, and the other gospel writers describe it as the angel of the Lord rolling away the stone, and the stones rolled away. Not to let Jesus out. Bear that in mind but to let the disciples in so they could see that Jesus uh, was risen. That word see is the keynote of this chapter. It occurs over and over again uh, in, in verse 1. Mary Magdalene saw the stone. Uh, verse 5, John saw the linen wrappings. Verse 6, Simon Peter beheld. A synonym, a synonym for the word that's translated saw in verse 5. A little different word. We'll talk about it when we get there. In verse 8, uh, John, uh, when he went into the tomb, saw and believed. Uh, another word, a third word that John uses. And then in verse 11, Mary beheld or saw the two angels. And in verse 14, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there. And then in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And it carries all the way through the rest of the chapters we'll see next week. The emphasis of this chapter is on what people saw and what they believed as a result. Why was the stone rolled away? Not to let Jesus out. So the disciples, but so the disciples could come in and see. Now, let's, uh, let's read and observe what they saw. Mary saw the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. She assumed that the grave had been robbed. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That would be John. He's typically anonymous in the book. 
but uh, we know that the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved is none other than the writer of, of the Gospel of John. So she came to Simon Peter's house, and then she went to John's house, or at least their residence where they were, where they were staying during this Passover period. And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She says, we, because there are other women that were with her. We know that from, from uh, the Gospel of Luke. We do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, that's John, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. John was either younger or in better shape than Peter. And he outran him. As a matter of fact, three times he points out that he ran faster than Peter. It's just like a man. I'm quicker than you are. <laughs> and stooping and looking in, uh, actually the, the, the phrase that's translated stooping and looking in is one, one word uh, in the Greek text that means to squint at something, to peer intently at something. It's the word that Peter uses when he says angels want to look into what God is doing with the human race. And James uses the word to describe those who look intently. That's the way the NASB translates that phrase. They look intently into the law of liberty. Uh, it doesn't mean to stoop over and look, look in so much as it means to peer into something. And John, you know, it was a little bit lighter, and he comes to the tomb, and he sees the stone rolled away, and, and he stops, and he peers in the holes. It's a little, if, if, if Jesus was buried in Gordon's tomb, it's a little low opening. It's about waist high. And he peered in trying to see what was in, in the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And what he saw was the lower part of Jesus, uh, of the wrappings that had been around Jesus' body. In those days, they didn't embalm. They rather uh, covered the body with uh, ointment and oils that had a resin base. And then they wrapped the body with, with a linen wrapping. Sometimes there would be a, a sheet that would be laid around the body, and then they would wrap the body with uh, linen strips. It would look somewhat like a mummy. And the resin base in the ointment would soak through those bandages so that in a few days uh, it would set up like a body cast, like a plaster cast. It would be, it'd be hard like that. You could knock on it. And what he saw when he looked in was the, was the cast. And he probably thought that he saw the body of Jesus because he couldn't see very well. He's looking from the outside into the dark interior. And he saw this, uh, the contours of Jesus' body. Probably assumed that he was still there, maybe thinking, oh, Mary, Mary's wrong. body hasn't been desecrated. Peter, in keeping with his uh, rather rambunctious, gopher-broke uh, style, brushed right by John. John's looking in. Peter ran right by him into the interior of the tomb. Peter came following him and entered the tomb and he beheld different word. The linen wrappings lying there. This word translated beheld means to stare at something. Peter did a double take. He ran in and, and he looked at at the linen wrappings, but he saw something else. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, literally wrapped together by itself. 
Now, I must confess, for years I read this passage and thought that what had happened is that our Lord rose from the dead and sort of tidied up the place before he left. I don't mean that to be irreverent, but uh, he took the napkin that was over his face and he folded it up and he put it down neatly and, and, and then he, he passed through the, the walls of, of, the, of the tomb. I don't think so. That's not what John saw. What he saw was the bottom half of the, of the linen wrappings from the neck down, following the contours of Jesus' body. They'd be stiff and hard like a plaster cast. And up where the head should have been, he saw the turban that was wrapped around the head, the linen wrappings that were, that were intertwined and made into a turban. Now here's the turban over here on the ledge. And lying on the slab was this plaster cast and nothing in between but thin air. You understand what he saw? He looked at the opening. He could look in the opening and there was nothing inside the cast. And there was nothing in the turban. And John came in right after him. John uh, then entered in, therefore, the other disciple, that's John who had been waiting outside, who had first come to the tomb and he saw... It's the same verb that's translated understood, or understand, in in verse 9. He perceived, he understood, and he believed. In other words, the coin dropped. He looked at at those, those, those linen wrappings, which would have covered the Lord's torso and, and lower part of his body, and he looked at that, that headpiece, and he saw nothing in between, and nothing inside those wrappings. And he realized, he realized that the body was not stolen. No one could have taken the body out of those wrappings without tearing the wrappings all to pieces. He realized that Jesus' body had simply passed right through the wrappings. And all of a sudden, everything fell into place. He understood. Now, John tells us that uh, up to this time, none of the disciples believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. He says it plainly, verse 9. For as yet they, and, and, and this verb could just as well be translated, had not understood the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The Old Testament predicted that Messiah would rise from the dead. Psalm 16, the passage that Dan read earlier, is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he says David uh, was talking about his Lord, his Messiah, and he understood that his body would not see corruption. This same Jesus whom he said you have crucified God has raised from the dead and made Lord over all. It was, it was predicted. The resurrection was predicted in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 10 says that uh, he will prolong his life. He will see his offspring if he makes his life an offering for sin. It's another promise of the resurrection of, of Messiah. But the disciples didn't see it. They knew the Old Testament far better than we, but they just didn't, didn't read it. With, with the eyes of faith, they didn't believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It was not their, their expectation. And Jesus had said on at least three different occasions when he was with the disciples, you destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I'll, I'll build it up again. And uh, there's an explanatory note, which is a footnote, an afterthought, that which the, apostle, the, the writer of, of the gospel adds. He was, we wasn't talking about the temple, the building. He was talking about the temple of his body. But they did not know that until after the resurrection. They didn't believe it. So so they didn't believe the scriptures, but when John saw those grave clothes, he believed it. And in my mind's eye, I can just see those men 
making their way home, it says that they, uh, they went away again to their own homes. And Luke adds, adds the statement that they were amazed. In, in our parlance, we would say they were blown away. Can you see those two, two men making their way back home? And for a while, he probably didn't say anything. And then John says to Peter, did you see what I saw? Peter says, I saw it. He said, I don't, I don't care what they say. There is no way that Jesus could have crawled out of those wrappings or that someone could have pulled him out of those wrappings. There's only one explanation for the state of those wrappings, and that is that, that Jesus' body just went right through those wrappings. And, and, and John must have said to Peter, I don't know about you, but I'm a believer. Now, uh, the next person to show up at the tomb was Mary, verse 11. She had been there first, according to verse 1. She came before it was light. She was one of the last people to stand at the foot of the cross and one of the first people to come to the, uh, come to the tomb. She's the woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven devils. I often think that when he cast them out of her, they uh, they came to Idaho to live up on the up on the northwest uh, of us here. Not really. I'm talking about the uh, Seven Devils Mountains, not any people up there. <clears throat> but uh, she was she was eternally grateful to Jesus for what for what he had done. She she. Uh, there's some people who identify her with the woman who washed Jesus' feet uh, with her hair, the woman that, that Luke talks about in Luke 8. For myself, I, I don't think so. We just don't know much about her. She came from Magdala. That's what, that's what her name means, Mary Magdalene, the city of Magdala. She is one of the leading women uh, in the New Testament. Peter is the leading man. She's the leading woman. She... Uh, turns up a dozen times or more in, in the gospel story as a follower of Jesus. She's sometimes described as a camp follower. get the impression she was following the disciples, but she was not. She was following Jesus. And our Lord loved her, and she loved our Lord because of what he had done for her. And, and, and that's why she was at the cross, and that's why she was first to the tomb. And she came weeping. I, I, she must have missed Peter and John as they went back to their homes. Perhaps, uh, I'm sure they outran her when they went back to the tomb. And it was only a matter of moments before they realized what had happened. They started back home. They must have passed her in the darkness. Or if they did see her and say to her, he's risen. We saw the, the uh, grave clothes. She perhaps didn't understand. So she went back to the tomb, tomb weeping. She was standing alongside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Same word that's used for John in verse 5. And she beheld, that's the word to stare, to do a double take, two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. Now I have to understand that when angels appear to men in the Old Testament and New Testament, normally they just appear as men. Uh, they don't uh, flap their wings and hum and float six inches off the, off the ground. They just look like people. That's all, like human beings. By and large, there are exceptions, but normally they look like, uh, like human beings. 
So, uh, for some reason or another, she didn't seem to be too alarmed. She, uh, they say to her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Uh, she said before, We do not know, referring to the women. Now she's all alone, all by herself at the tomb, talking to these two angels. And at this point, they must have looked over her shoulder because it says she turned around. They, they don't answer her, if you notice. She asks them. Uh, she, she responds to their question, Why are you weeping? Because they've taken away my Lord. They've taken his body away. They're still think, she's still thinking that they robbed the tomb and stolen the body of, of Jesus. When she said this, she turned around and beheld. The same word that's used in verse 12. She started and stared because Jesus was standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Perhaps uh, the tears in her eyes blinded her somewhat. Or it was still dark, or there were appearances of Jesus in the New Testament where people didn't recognize him, so there's some indication that he wasn't always recognizable. She thought he was the gardener. I asked the staff why they thought that. Someone said because he had a wheelbarrow. But uh, I, uh, I think it more likely it's because uh, he was the only person that would be there early in the morning. It's the only person you would expect to be in a garden. And uh, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll... I'll take him away. Uh, you have to understand what a breach of convention that was because women in those days didn't talk to men and they did not talk to strangers, certainly not strange men. You can see something of her, of her stress and how distraught she was that she would speak to this man whom she didn't recognize. Jesus said to her, Mary, Maria, that's her name. I couldn't help but think of John's words, Jesus' words, actually, that John records in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He knew Mary, and Mary, uh, perhaps just the intonation of his voice, or the way he said Maria, he'd said it so many times. She recognized that it was the Lord and she said to him in Hebrew or, or in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He explains the, the word because she uses the Galilean word for a rabbi, the dialect that was spoken in northern Israel. And Jewish readers, certainly those from outside Palestine, wouldn't, wouldn't know the word. They, they referred to their teacher as Ravi, rabbi. So he explains, but he says the word just means teacher. That's all. Jesus said to her, Mary. She said to him, Teacher. And one of the, one of the early translations, uh, probably based on a very strong tradition, indicates that at this point she ran to Jesus and grabbed hold of him. Now, if it were today, given the kind of freedom we have, she, we would probably see her hugging Jesus, just throwing her arms around him. But women didn't do that sort of thing in those days, and certainly they wouldn't do it to a rabbi, to a teacher. It's quite a little distance that was maintained, reserved. So she may very well have fallen down at his feet and, and, and grasped hold of his, of his feet. We don't know, but, but she did clutch him. Because Jesus says to her in, in verse 17, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. 
But go to my brethren, that is the apostles, and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now, when you read this, you get the impression that our Lord was very abrupt, that he was put off by what Mary did. But you have to understand what he's saying. What he literally says is, you must stop clinging to me now. Apparently, she clung to him for a while, and, and then he said to her, Now, Mary, we need, to, we need to put a stop to this. Now, there are various explanations given for why he said this. Some, some say that he had not yet ascended to the Father. He still had uh, the body that uh, some would say that was given to him immediately after the resurrection, and, and he had to go before the Father and, and, and present the blood of the sacrifice in order to receive his resurrection body. For myself, I don't believe that that's, that's the explanation for it, but some would say that. Others would say, he's saying to Mary, there's a new relationship now that's being established. Before we had a physical relationship, but now I, something new is going to happen. I'm going to ascend to the Father and descend in the person of the Holy Spirit, so our relationship will be a spiritual relationship. But, but neither of those explanations have ever proved very satisfying to me. I think all Jesus is saying is, all right, Mary, we need, we need to put a stop to this now and get on about the business that we have yet to do. We both have unfinished business. I have to ascend to the Father, and you have to go tell the apostles that I've risen from the dead. I think that's what he's saying. We need to get on with it. And that's what Mary did. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, she said. And then he tells them what, uh, what he had said to her. One of the marks, someone has pointed this out, one of the marks of the authenticity of this, of this account is the fact that Jesus appeared first to a woman and first commissioned a woman to preach the gospel. Because, as people point out, in that culture, it would be highly unlikely that anyone would fabricate a story which would put a woman right in the center of the story because women were not considered to be credible witnesses back then. Their testimony was not even admitted into a, in, into a court of law. They didn't like women. Women were, were chattel. They weren't even considered human beings, by and large, unless they were upper-class upper women. And the very fact that Jesus appeared first to a woman and first commissioned a woman to preach the gospel, they say is an evidence that this is what actually happened because Jesus did not share the prejudices of the people of, of that time. He considered women to be human beings. It could have been anyone who first came to the tomb. It could, have been, it could have been Peter to whom the Lord revealed. But it happened to be, to be Mary because Mary came seeking the Lord. The Lord sought her out because she had sought the Lord out. You see, the Lord took women very seriously. He didn't look at women as women. He looked at women as human beings. And he believed that their witness was just as powerful as anyone else's witness. It didn't make any difference to him. And it shouldn't make any difference to us. We need to look at people as, as human beings. That's all. It didn't make any difference whether they're rich or poor, educated or, or un, uneducated, young or old. 
Male or female, those differences don't any longer make any difference. Our Lord expects women to be grown-up disciples of His, capable of giving just as powerful a witness to the truth as, as any man. Our Lord did not play into the conventions of, of His time. It just happened that Mary had a heart for Him, and she sought Him with all of her heart. And so He sought her out and revealed Himself first to her. And commissioned her first to go back and tell the apostles. And uh, we know in, uh, earlier when the women had gone back to tell the apostles what they had seen when the angels appeared to them. that Luke tells that story. The disciples scoffed. They laughed. They said, this is nonsense. They used the word for, for trivia. Isn't this like a woman? Making up a story like this, they say. And later when Jesus was walking, when they were two of these disciples were on their way down to, the, uh, down to Emmaus, our Lord appeared to them and called them fools. You men are fools because you didn't believe what was written in, in the prophets. They called women's fo women foolish because they, they thought this was a made-up story, some kind of female hysteria. The Lord turned the tables on them and said, You men are fools because these women saw something that you didn't even see. I, uh, when we were studying uh, John uh, 12, I read... Uh, part of an essay from Dorothy Sayers, and I'm going to read it again because it just fits so well. She wrote a book about 30 years ago entitled, Are Women Human? And I just want to read a portion of this because she says it so well. Some, some of you will remember uh, part of this quote. I'm going to read a bit more of it. It's talking about the fact that Jews uh, really did not appreciate women, didn't take them seriously. As a matter of fact, every Jewish man prayed every day. Or thank God that uh, you had not made him a woman. God, of course, may have his opinion, that is, about women, that women are worthwhile, that women are human, is the point she's making. But the church is reluctant to endorse it. I think I've never heard a sermon preached on the story of Martha and Mary that did not attempt somehow, somewhere, to explain away the text. Mary's, of course, was the better part. The Lord said so, and we must not precisely contradict him. But we will not but we will be careful not to despise Martha. He's saying this is the way the text is abused. We must not despise Martha. Nobody, no doubt he approved of her too. We could not get on without her, and indeed, having paid lip service to God's opinion, we must admit that we greatly prefer her. Because Martha was doing the female thing, see. She was scurrying around cooking. Martha was doing the really feminine job, whereas Mary was just behaving like any other disciple, male or female, and that's a hard pill for men to swallow. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere of influence for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. But we might easily deduce it from our contemporaries. Women are not human. 
Nobody shall persuade them that they are. Let them say what they like. We will not believe it, though one rose from the dead. Now, what she's saying is that Jesus took, took women seriously. He, he didn't consider them uh, disciplettes or subsets of men, but as mature, full-grown disciples of his, capable of having a profound influence on their, on their place of life and, and ministry. He said to Mary, not to Peter, you go back and tell those apostles that I've risen from the dead. And she did it. That was the commission to us, and, uh, or to her, and uh, it's likewise the, the commission to us, all of us, men and women as well. Every human being who knows Christ as Savior is commissioned to tell people, tell the world that he's alive. It doesn't make any difference who you are, what your educational background is, whether or not you've been to seminary or Bible school, whether you're young or old or inexperienced in the faith or have been a Christian for, for years and years, whether you're male or female, whether you're elderly or whether you're a child, doesn't make any difference. Every human being who knows Christ as Savior is, is commissioned to, to share the gospel wherever we go. Our, our task, as I've said over and over again, is so easy. It's simply to befriend people and tell them what we've seen and heard. That's all Mary did. She, she, she went back and, and she shared the truth with, with her friends. And that's what God has called us to do. It doesn't make any difference who you are. Your task and mine is simply to befriend people and tell them what you've seen and heard. Most of you work at jobs you don't like. And I, you know, I rarely find anybody who really likes what they do. People tell me, I, I don't like my job. And I say, neither do I. I like parts of it, but there are parts of it I don't like. And I don't know of anybody who likes their job, whether it's in the house or out in the business world or on a, on a high school campus or wherever it is. Either, you know, that's one of the results of the fall. The ground works hard, grows thorns and thistles. Nobody likes their job. I don't care whether your job is uh, more domestic in the home or whether it's in, in business, but that's, that's to be expected. You, we will never get satisfaction from our job. No one will. As I've said before, one of the reasons men become workaholics is because they don't know that. They just think they work a little harder. Sooner or later, the ground will yield and they'll feel better about their job. It'll never happen. You'll go to your grave trying to make something happen out there and it'll never happen. You'll always be satisfied, dissatisfied. What satisfies us is knowing God and making him know. All of us need to see that our sphere of our job, whatever it is, whether it's in the home or the business world or whether it's in a farming community or on a university campus or in a shop somewhere, wherever it is, our, our occupation may be to do that work, but our preoccupation is to befriend people and tell them what you've seen and heard about, about the Lord Jesus. And that's what will satisfy you. And nothing else will. A lot of women are very unhappy about working at home, and they go out into the into the business world and get a job, and that's okay, that's fine, There's nothing sinful about that. But that's not going to satisfy you. There are a lot of men that are that are working hard in order to retire. They think somehow that they're going to find satisfaction in getting to the top and making enough money to be able to retire and and live an, a life of ease. That's not going to satisfy you. 
There's only one thing that will satisfy you, and that's getting to know God and making Him known. And that's what we've all got to do. You know, there are people out there in the world, and I, and I, I would have to say most people out there in the world are looking for God. They don't know that's what they're looking for. They think they're looking for uh, wealth or influence or uh, sex or something of that nature. They, they think that's what they're working for. But in reality, what they're working for is God. I, I have a, a good friend. He is indeed a good friend who, who, is, who is a non-Christian. He's one of the nicest men I know. About once a year, we, we get together just to talk. Uh, he chides me about my being too religious, and I chide him about being too religious. Uh, the difference is we just believe in different things. That's all. Uh, he believes basically in man and what man can do, and, and I believe in God and what God can do, and, and that those are our respective uh, spheres of worship. It's odd. I keep running into him from time to time in the strangest places. And last week, uh, I was sitting in a restaurant uh, waiting for a friend to show up. I always take a book with me when I do that because I've learned a long time ago that people are either late or they don't show up. And uh, I have read more books just sitting waiting for people to show up. And I uh, I was reading on that particular day... Uh, Augustine's City of God. Now, I hasten to tell you that I do not spend my time reading books like this all the time. Uh, I might just as well have been reading uh, Sports Illustrated or Fly Fisher Magazine or, or Agatha Christie or something else. But I, uh, I have set a, a goal for myself to read so many pages of Augustine this year, and so I'm plugging away at it. So I happen to be reading Augustine's City of God. Uh, he came by and he said, what are you doing? And uh, I said, I'm reading Augustine. And he said, that sounds heavy. And I had just read a paragraph in the city of God. And I said, let me read what Augustine has to say. He said, okay. He's describing two men, one a believer and one an unbeliever. What Augustine is doing in the city of God essentially is saying that there are only two kinds of Men and women in the world, there are people that are in God's city and there are people that are in man's city. And that's basically the, that's the difference. It's the same message, really, as the book of Revelation. He says, of these two men, let us suppose that one is poor or better in moderate circumstances, the other extremely wealthy. But our wealthy man is haunted by fear, heavy with cares, feverish with greed, never secure, always restless, breathless from endless quarrels with his enemies. By these miseries, he adds to his possessions beyond measure, but he also piles up for himself a mountain of worry. On the other hand, the believer, God's man or woman, is content with a small and compact patrimony. He is loved by his own. He enjoys the sweetness of peace in his relationships with kindred, neighbors, and friends is kindly disposed and at peace with his conscience. Thus, the God's man, though a slave, even though he's poor and he's a slave, is free. 
But the man without God, though a king, is a slave, for he serves not one man alone, but what is worse, as many masters as he has passions. For it is in reference to passion that the Holy Scripture says, For by what a man is overcome of the same also, he is a slave. I just read this without any comment. And I I expected some snappy rejoinder because he's a very witty person and I expect him to come back with some comment. I looked at his face and he was utterly stricken. If a man's eyes are the mirror of his soul, I saw right into that man's heart. I have never seen such emptiness and despair in my whole life. Now, this is a very successful man. He has it all. But he's empty. I really believe that. I may have misread him. I, you know, I, I cannot really see people, but I don't think so. And it's my belief that that's, that's the condition of most people out there with all the fun and And foolishness out front, inside, there's an awful lot of emptiness. And we have the answer to that emptiness, you and I. It doesn't make any difference whether we're male or female. Our Lord has commissioned us to proclaim the gospel, to preach it. You don't have to be a preacher to preach it. The word that Paul uses, preach the gospel, is the word that was used to describe the kirooks of the king, the herald of the king who went out declaring the decrees of the king. King raised Jesus from the dead, and we need to declare that, that message. Wherever we are, in your shop, your office, your living room, in your neighborhood, on your campus, we need to declare it because there are people out there that are looking for life. Let's pray. I want to ask you to do what I asked you to do some months ago when we talked along these, uh, along these lines before. Ask the Lord to place in your heart some one person that you know that, that you suspect is really searching for the Lord. Or it may even be the unlikeliest person that, that you know that just don't seem to have any interest in spiritual things, but God has laid them on your heart. Would you ask him to bring that person to your mind, and would you pray that sometime this week you'd have an opportunity to to do something loving and kind for them and, and then without brashness and without, without rudeness to talk to them about what you've seen and heard. As Mary did and as the other, as the apostles did and, and men and women in the church have done for 1,900 years. Would you ask the Lord to do that? And then there may be some of you here who who are convinced now or you suspect that it may be true that Jesus really did rise from the dead and and therefore you don't have to fear death any longer and that what what the gospel writers have said about the cross and and the results of the cross the freedom from guilt freedom from fear of judgment that all of those things have been taken away and, and because he was crucified for us and and buried and raised again, it really did happen. It's really true, and you suspect that that's so. Would you ask him to be your Lord, to come alongside you and into your life and and fill you and, and provide just what you need, the courage that you need to face life and its demands and free you from guilt and fear, 
apprehension about the future, give you the strength to face into your problems at home or on, on the job or wherever it may be. Would you just ask him to do that? He's still today seeking men and women that are seeking him. He's seeking you to worship him. Would you just respond to that call that he's giving to you? Lord, we thank you for this reminder again that it is true. Our faith is based upon solid fact. We don't have to dream that it's true or wish that it, that it is. It is. And we thank you that uh, because it's true, because you live, we can live. We can experience life to the fullest. And we can experience an eternal life. We thank you for that. We ask for people that are here who are still confused about the message and uncertain about its truth. Would you come seeking them as you sought out Mary? And for those of us who know you and believe it with all of our hearts, help us to make it known, take away our cowardice and our, our fear of what people might, uh, might think of us and help us to quietly, gently, but with real authority tell people that he, he's come back. He's living today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.